Committee, Episode 325 of the FCPA Compliance Report. The FCPA Compliance Report is sponsored by Advanced Compliance Solutions, your one-stop shop for all compliance-related solutions. Today I have with me James Tillon and Mark Bone from the law firm of Miller and Chevalier, where they discuss a very interesting publication on evaluating the FCPA pilot program, Declinations on the Rise. The paper that they article, excuse me, authored in April, and it really talks about and delineates the declinations issued by the Department of Justice since the pilot program, and what are some of the implications of this. It's a fascinating uh, podcast, and I think you will find it uh, very interesting. Thank you for joining me on this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you back for another episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. Today, I am joined by two friends of the podcast, James Tillon and Mark Bone, both from Miller and Chevalier in Washington, D.C., who have recently authored a report on evaluation of the FCPA pilot program, Declinations on the Rise. And they've graciously agreed to take some time from their very busy schedule to uh, come on and uh, talk to us about um, the uh, report they've issued and their general thoughts on the uh, FCPA pilot program at it near its one-year anniversary. So, gentlemen, with that long-winded introduction, welcome and thank you very much. Thanks, Tom. Pleasure to be here. Great to be on. So uh, I think that uh, in a series of uh, announcements and pronouncements from the Department of Justice over the past couple of years, really starting with the Yates memo, this one is uh, the pilot program was really up there near the top for me. And I was wondering, uh, what did the numbers show you guys about uh, the increase or decrease in declinations? And really, uh, what were your thoughts on uh, the one-year anniversary of the pilot program? Thank you. Um, we saw in looking at declinations, and we're defining declinations broadly here to include any instance where the government uh, closed an investigation without enforcement because the government's reasons for doing so are, are generally not apparent unless they publicly disclose the declination. Uh, we saw an uptick. We've been tracking these numbers for several years now, and uh, They've been on a general rise over the past few years, but last year was the most DOJ declinations we've ever seen for a total of 15. And this year, we've seen another five or six this, this past quarter for, for over 20 for the past uh, year and a half, about 20 since last April alone, um, which generally leads us to believe there's more investigations closing. And in parallel to that, we've seen the SEC continue to prosecute a lot of these cases and bring civil charges. And to pick up your, your last question about sort of view of, of the pilot program one year in, I think that the, the DOJ has viewed it as, as successful. Uh, they have been more transparent in, in some of these declination decisions, not all as, as uh, we talk about, but there's been a few public releases of the declinations, which is particularly helpful to see the reasons to confirm that they are true declinations. Mark alluded to that definition problem. And it's also something therefore to show to clients and the fact that the, the pilot program does provide some, some clear statements regarding the benefits of, of voluntary disclosure, cooperation, remediation. It has been helpful uh, in, in using it with clients to, to get, 
to allow them to to make a more informed decision about voluntary disclosure. Yeah, that's a great point, James. And because I was going to lead in or I was going to ask you the question about the conditions to obtain a declination and you named three of them. I'm going to add the fourth of uh, some sort of profit disgorgement or paying back of your ill-gotten gains. But I wanted to ask you guys, do you all see as these four factors being of equal importance or does one have more importance? And how do you really think uh, think through the four factors with a client and help them understand what their the client's obligations are going to be going forward? Right. I, I think you would have to view self-disclosure as the most important because essentially without that, uh, according to the pilot program, you're, you're already off the board for a declination. And so I think that the self-disclosure is the most important. But thereafter you then have to fully cooperate, you do have to remediate, and then as you mentioned, this disgorgement piece, which is interesting and, and, and new uh, under the pilot program is, is important. So I think that, that self-disclosure is key, and as they say in there, it has to be prompt and it has to be truly voluntary, not, not prompted by trying to beat a whistleblower in or, or anticipation of a press article that's coming out the next day, it's gotta be something that truly is voluntary in nature. Uh, and so that's something that we are sit with our clients when they have confirmed violations and, and walk through that, that, that calculus. And um, it's, it's made the decision, although it's always a hard decision, a little bit more informed because of one, one thing I would add to that is uh, in light of the Yates memo and DOJ rhetoric, uh, perhaps you could also add the willingness of a company to provide information on internal wrongdoers um, so that the Department of Justice can pursue individuals as it's uh, stated one of its primary focuses is. That's definitely a, the important subset of cooperation. That cooperation, and they emphasize and, and reiterate the Yates memo theme of providing information on individual wrongdoers. And that really led into where I wanted to head next, which was the extensive cooperation and then the extensive remediation prongs. How do you help a client understand what their obligations are going to be under uh, both of those? So you talked about turning over information about individuals, but my sense is the government, and I think you guys would know much better sitting across the table from them, they expect a, a really a very high level of cooperation during the investigation. Can you detail some of the general parameters of that? Sure. You're absolutely right. They, they do expect full cooperation. They want access to, to the facts. They are, uh, and then the pilot program confirms, respectful of the attorney-client privilege, which is helpful and, and slightly different uh, approach, for example, that the uh, U.S. and U.K. SFO is taking. But on the, uh, besides that privilege, issue, they expect full cooperation. And that um, can mean that you have to work extremely hard to overcome obstacles such as data privacy restrictions to get the evidence and data to the, the DOJ, access to, to individuals, and, uh, and um, uh, allow the DOJ and, and SEC, well, the DOJ for purposes of the pilot program, but if you're in front of the SEC, you have to follow the same pattern for cooperation. And so um, I think uh, moving quickly, uh, constant check-ins, uh, updating them on developments, 
under, making them understand where there might be some challenges and how you're overcoming those challenges are all important aspects of cooperation. Right, and I think one interesting thing you've seen in uh, enforcement actions over the past year or two is the department becoming more specific in terms of what they highlight as an example of, of, of extraordinary cooperation, and they know making witnesses available for interviews voluntarily, translating documents into English, and doing a range of other things, and I don't know that all of those would necessarily be required for a declination, but they do I think adds to the general sense that a company is going above and beyond in its, its, its efforts to cooperate. One other thing I think I would note in terms of cooperation is, uh, or, or uh, in terms of cooperating, I think remediating is 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 is, um, is is very important to that as well. We've seen instances where companies may have been cooperating but have failed to stop the wrongdoing, and an issue arises during the course of the investigation uh, that that indicates that they haven't gotten on top of their controls. And I think if that occurs, it, it could sink your chances to secure a declination. So we saw a lot of, I thought, very innovative remediation techniques in enforcement actions last year. Some of those uh, remediation techniques were then uh, really addressed specifically in the evaluation of corporate compliance um, programs, which was released in February. And so that led me to really wonder if, um, do you have to be on the cutting edge on your remediation or is it um, something that really a, a company needs to address the violation in terms of the remediation or am I completely off the mark on both of those? I think, I think in terms of what's going to be appropriate uh, in terms of remediation is largely going to depend on the company, its size, the industry. And I think that's one of the, the things you get out of the new guidance that was issued in February is that there's not a, a simple answer or a, a right answer for all companies across the board, that it's going to depend. And part of it may depend on a company's specific culture, the company centers where it operates in, and the extent of the, the misconduct that that, that company saw. And so the, the government's going to want to see that they've identified and addressed those uh, issues and that they are uh, responding actively to it. In terms of the specific example, we represented a company that had encountered a lot of issues in China. And even though issues continually arose, uh, we ultimately secured a declination for the company in part because we showed the company's compliance program was evolving. And so... They put in a certain control, and they found that employees were seeking to circumvent it in certain ways, and then they sought to plug that leak, and sometimes another leak would arrive. And as long as the government saw that the company was continually monitoring for new leaks and coming up with novel ways to address those, uh, it, it, it felt pretty comfortable with the company's compliance program. So now let, let me turn to what I thought was the most intriguing thing about your report. And, and this, the section title alone really uh, was what grabbed me. So kudos to whoever wrote this, which was SEC enforcement as a factor in DOD declination decisions. And you specifically point out that that's not stated in the pilot program. It wasn't stated at the press conference. It wasn't stated in the um, 
guidance document issued around the pilot program. But I was wondering if you could just kind of ex explore that and, and really help the audience understand uh, what the DOJ or what you guys have seen from this, because I thought this was really the most intriguing thing, which led to what you call declinations with disgorgement and uh, how that uh, worked, uh, worked in practice. Right. So the, the, let's pick up on that point about the disgorgement. One thing is if a company is before an issuer and therefore before the SEC and DOJ on FDPA issues, with the SEC resolution, there is this disgorgement mechanism. And so that satisfies the DOJ uh, requirement that of, of disgorgement of of ill-gained profits, and therefore there's less pressure on the DOJ to bring an action and easier for them to decline and walk away because it's sufficiently being dealt with with the SEC. And with a private company, you don't have that SEC angle, and therefore that's why we've seen these two matters, these declinations with disgorgement to satisfy that, that uh, requirement of, of the pilot program. So certainly there being an SEC component give the DOJ more flexibility. And it's also consistent with, with statements they've been making publicly that their focus is now on bigger, higher impact cases, including those against individuals. Uh, and so with the SEC and its civil remedies, its broader um, uh, or, or lower evidentiary uh, and, and uh, standards for, for civil enforcement and the fact that the accounting provisions are so broad, they can get to a lot more uh, activity than the DOJ can, and the DOJ is happy for them to do that because they can then direct its resources to these higher impact cases. So I think that SEC component does give them more, more flexibility, even though it's not stated in the pilot program. One you thing I would also add in terms of... Uh, um, this week, we heard from, from Acting Principal Deputy Assistant Attorney General Trevor McFadden uh, on declinations and on the DOJ's approach to enforcement. And I think it, it reiterates the, this idea that the DOJ may increasingly begin to defer to the SEC in cases where uh, some of the jurisdictional arguments are a little more difficult or where there is not a clear evidence of scienter. And so, uh, among other things, Trevor McFadden noted that uh, other times the facts convince us that a criminal resolution is required, where we do not have evidence of requisite criminal intent, there is no justification for a criminal division resolution, we defer to our regulatory colleagues to handle the matter. Um, I think in the past, we've had some FCPA uh, some members of the FCPA bar criticized the DOJ for being overly aggressive and bringing cases that wouldn't have held up in court. And comments like these suggest that borderline cases, the DOJ may in the future decide to, to defer to the SEC and enforce them. You know, that's an excellent point. And uh, I read that uh, those same uh, texts of uh, McFadden's speeches and, and drew that uh, as well. And there's particularly, um, I don't know, I just felt it was a positive when the DOJ said, if there's not intent, uh, we will we may not prosecute, and uh, we we may well defer over to civil authorities, uh, specifically the SEC, uh, for those guys to take a look at it under the uh, Securities and Exchange Act and the broadness of the remedies available there. So uh, excellent um, 
point uh, and really con- um, I was intrigued that that concept was uh, specifically remarked on this week. Guys, if I could uh, maybe ask you to put on your uh, Karnak the Magnificent hat and kind of read the tea leaves, because I know really on everyone's mind is where we may be going into the veiled areas of the future. We've had uh, one uh, Department of Justice um, representative uh, talk about extending the pilot program or at least – uh, extending it uh, on a temporary basis going forward. There has been no specific uh, pronouncement from the Department of Justice as to whether the pilot program will be extended or it will be made permanent or uh, if there are going to be changes. But from your research, uh, where you sit across the table from the regulators and from the business community, is this something that people would like to see extended uh, forward? And do you see it really working for everyone involved, you, me, our clients, uh, the government, and um, the compliance profession going forward. Yeah, I think uh, going back to McFadden's speech, he actually had a little bit more to, to say in that. He gives us a little better sense and that he said that the program is they're doing a full assessment of it right now and they're examining ways uh, whether there's more that we can do to promote voluntary compliance with the law and what more we can do to provide appropriate transparency regarding our expectations and prosecutorial priorities. In the meantime, the program will continue in full force. So pretty emphatic on that point that the pilot program in the, in the short term will remain in force. I generally view that as a positive. Now, there's still, although it, it purports to provide more concrete uh, guidance on what will happen to you as a company if you voluntarily disclose and cooperate and has some helpful numbers mentioning up to 50% off and the, and the monitor. And if you don't disclose, the most you can get is 25%. Those are all helpful, but there's still a significant amount of wiggle room within those percentages and also a significant amount of wiggle room in how you do the sentencing calculation. So it's not, yes, that, that 25% to 50% off the bottom line is, is looks like a hard number, but how you calculate that number can, can be played with quite a bit. Um, and so it, it is more concrete than what was there before, certainly, but it certainly doesn't get you all the way in providing some, some clear uh, predictability to a result uh, to advise a client. So there's still, still some uncertainties and unknown, but generally I view it as, as a positive. Uh, so Mark, I don't know if you have a different thought on that. I, I definitely think our clients view it as a positive. I think uh, in terms of investigations that produce significant findings of misconduct, the pilot program may be kind of something that pushes companies towards greater comfort in disclosing that misconduct, where the conduct, I mean, is, is, is more minor and more uh, isolated. Uh, I think uh, companies still have a hard decision as to whether they think simply addressing the issue in-house and, and conducting the investigation in-house and, and closing the matter or mediating would be better for them than disclosing and potentially opening a, a can of worms in terms of an investigation they can't control. So I think I think it, it hasn't made all decisions easier. A lot of the, the companies we represent, a lot of the, the, the FCPA issues they encounter are, are more mid-level than systematic or programmatic and, 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 and large-scale. And so... Uh, I, I don't know that the FCK pilot program yet has, has pushed them to a stance where they, they, they 
first think of voluntarily disclosing. But McFadden's comments, I mean, if, if, if that's where the DOJ is going, they want to push more voluntary disclosures and they kind of provide kind of more evidence of, of, of benefits and more declinations and things like that, I think it, it could push companies to a point where they're more comfortable with it. And I, I do think there are some companies that, despite the pilot program, despite it continuing to enforce, are still in a wait-and-see approach with the new administration, waiting to see how things shake out. And I think you can see Trevor McFadden and the fact that he is appearing at, at many of these conferences and delivering this message. There is some real effort there to to uh, convey that it's, it's business as usual um, and that, uh, we'll, that the DOJ will still continue to aggressively enforce the FCPA with some messaging of we might be a little bit more selective, however, which is, which is uh, I think, welcome to the business community. So um, it, it's an interesting, interesting times. And uh, <laughs> I love discussing this, even though, uh, and I, I'm looking forward to seeing how the next few months play out. Sure. And one of the things I've really been thinking about is, and particularly in light of McFadden's remarks this week, where he talked about specifically uh, transparency uh, from the DOJ side, working with companies as partners to further the goal of uh, general uh, anti-corruption across the globe, and even talking about speeding up the uh, internal investigative process at the Department of Justice, it struck me that this really may put more pressure on corporations and corporate compliance programs, not necessarily to get it right the first time, but to do the steps that you have uh, articulated for us in terms of self-disclosure, extensive cooperation, remediation when appropriate, and that corporations are going to have to step up and really be a part of uh, this process as a business partner, if, if that's the right uh, phrase to use. Really, any thoughts on any additional pressures or uh, how this might impact corporations as well? Right. I, I do think you've, uh, you've highlighted an interesting issue. I mean, McFadden specifically noted the government's interested in reducing the amount of uh, or the length of investigations from years to months, but it's, it's relying on companies to help do so as well. And so I think it, it puts pressure on companies to respond quickly and to address these issues quickly. And, and I mean, ultimately, if you want to be seen as cooperating and voluntarily disclosing promptly, you may need to, 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 to make that decision earlier in the process uh, than you otherwise might have in the past. Yeah, I think that picking up on Mark's, our Mark's point, I thought that was an interesting development. And already a lot of our investigations happen at breakneck speed and you're trying to to get to the bottom of the issues stop wrongdoing remediate quickly but this would seem to put even more pressure on that and suggest there's a you know parallel tracking in in, uh, in investigative activity and so uh that that is interesting to see that that pressure because it's you know some of these investigations are are challenging from from as with an overseas investigation and the evidence and witnesses being often outside the United States and the difficulty of accessing that because of data privacy or, or other issues, it, it, some of these investigations can take some time just because of their complexity. And so with that pressure to try to resolve them more quickly, that, that could be more costly in, uh, in the short term for, for some of the companies with an FTPA issue. 
And Mark, I think it was you spoke about a client who remediated uh, a certain uh, issue, and that uh, initial attempt at remediation uh, led to other consequences, which required additional remediation. So from kind of from my perspective, the same might be true on the remediation side of things. Sometimes your first remediation is not as effective as you or the government might like it to be. So it's a, a evolution and a continuing process. Would do you see that as well? I do, and I think that's one of the reasons why the government pushes assessments and audits as part of their, their model compliance programs, because they recognize that uh, a company's initial attempt to stop misconduct and to remediate it may not, may not be effective, and so that a company can't simply rest on its laurels after having fired someone or addressed high-level uh, uh, some issue without kind of looking later on down the road to see whether the steps they've taken have effectively stopped the misconduct. So, gentlemen, was uh, there anything uh, that you wanted to uh, to add further um, uh, that we didn't get to, or uh, some additional thoughts that uh, you might want to share with the audience? Yeah, just one point on on the stats is that this is a a, a fluid. Um, a fluid subject matter because oftentimes we learn declinations down the road because they don't appear uh, since the DOJ doesn't announce all of these. They often appear late in the day in, in uh, SEC filings. And so stay tuned. These numbers could continue to grow and we could, uh, you know, 2016 could actually have had higher numbers than we initially reported. And so that's one thing is that we, we assume that these numbers are actually unreporting declinations in some sense. Well, gentlemen, this has been just uh, way too much fun for me on this podcast, but I wanted to really publicly thank you both for putting together uh, this report. The Miller and Chevalier uh, annual and quarterly updates are a great resource to the uh, greater compliance community, and uh, this this particular report is going to be very useful going forward. The fluidity of everything is going to require you guys to, to keep on your toes so that uh, people like me can keep up with what uh, the government is doing. So, Thank you very much. Thanks, Tom. Appreciate Thank it. Appreciate it. And uh, we would note that we have a, a, our quarterly review should be coming out this coming week. So keep your eyes peeled. So, and uh, if somebody wanted to uh, take a look at that, uh, could you uh, point them in the right direction? Sure. Uh, we have an SCPA portal to our Miller and Chevrolet website, and I can provide that link to Tom, and he can put it on the the, the, the website for this uh, podcast. Great, guys. Thanks a lot, and I uh, look forward to continuing the conversation. Thanks, Tom. Thanks. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. In addition to the report on declinations, which I visited with uh, Mark and James about, Miller and Chevalier has recently issued their, FC, their quarterly FCPA review entitled the FCPA Spring Review 2017. If you're not familiar with this report, it is an excellent resource for all things FCPA, which have occurred in the first quarter of 2017. I will link to it in the show notes. Also, if you have listened to this podcast on iTunes, I would greatly appreciate it if you would rank us, as it would uh, rate us rather, as it would help in the rankings and help get the word out about the FCPA compliance report. Finally, if you have any questions, please feel free to contact me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. This is Tom Fox. Thank you for listening to this episode, and I hope you'll join me again for another episode of the FCPA Compliance Report.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.